Welcome to the latest edition of Full Comment. I'm guest host Jamil Giovanni. An international conversation about anti-Semitism has been caused by recent comments and actions of rapper Kanye West and NBA player Kyrie Irving. A unique aspect of the controversies surrounding West and Irving is that they are two influential black men accused of anti-Semitism, shining a light on historical and present-day dynamics between black and Jewish communities. Back in 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. said that anti-Semitism hurts black people and Jews. He argued that anti-Semitism upholds the doctrine of racism, which blacks have the greatest stake in destroying. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Wilfred Riley to discuss whether Americans have drifted away from the wisdom of Martin Luther King Jr. and what the controversies involving Kanye West and Kyrie Irving reveal about the problem of anti-Semitism. Dr. Riley is an assistant professor of political science at Kentucky State University and the author of Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Dr. Riley, welcome to Full Comment. Great to be here. Looking forward to the show. Hopefully, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, outside my house here in Kentucky, so hopefully there won't be any noise in the background, any animals or anything like that. But yeah, glad to, glad to be on the show. <laughs> well, certainly glad to have you. I mean, it's, it's an important and frankly, I think a difficult conversation for a lot of people to have with the right, I think, nuance and consideration. So I think we're very lucky to welcome you. I know you spent a lot of time thinking about race relations, um, challenges around different racial communities, understanding one another and their experiences in American society. So I, I think you're uh, an excellent person to kind of weigh in on this. And I think a, maybe a good place to start with you, Dr. Riley, is just your initial reaction to what Weston Irving sort of said on social media and the blowback it received. So for listeners who might not be keeping tabs on what's been going on, West initially started a lot of this drama on Twitter, tweeting he was going to go death con three on Jewish people after Mark Zuckerberg, uh, I mean, he accused Mark Zuckerberg in particular of banning him from Instagram. And then Kyrie Irving's controversy began when he tweeted a link to what is widely considered to be an anti-Semitic documentary. Um, obviously, there's been a blowback on both. You know, they've suffered professionally, their personal relationships, people are commenting, their friends publicly. Uh, what did you make of, I guess, the initial social media uproar? And did the backlash against Weston Irving surprise you at all? Well, I, I think there are levels to this. So first of all, I mean, I saw the comments. I'm a hip hop guy. And I thought I thought they were pretty stupid. I mean, Kanye West, obviously, he said, I'm going to go death con three on Jewish people or them Jews or something like that. And then the next day he just went on with this. I mean, at one point he said that Adidas couldn't cancel him for being anti-Semitic. He was too powerful. You know, Adidas obviously is a German company, a lot of Jewish executives. So, I mean, they're pretty sensitive there. He did an interview with Piers Morgan where at one point he got up from the chair and threatened to storm away. I mean, so it was just sort of like this is more of this foolishness from a celebrity, I guess, would be the initial reaction. Kyrie, um, I'm not even really sure Kyrie Irving did anything per se. He shared the documentary uh, Hebrews to Negroes, which is pretty racist, pretty anti-Semitic. But, I mean, it's it's the sort of thing that you... It wouldn't be unusual to see a black man or, for that matter, a religious white guy drop online a la, what do you think about this? But so my first reaction was, well, this is dumb. We'll see what happens. Um, the, the question really is not whether Kanye's remarks were 
highly intelligent or whether there's something to be said for Hebrews to Negroes. I mean, there's, as we both know as black men, there's a bunch of, not even anti-Semitism, but bizarre almost mythology in the black community. I mean, we were the Egyptians, we were the the first Jews, we discovered fire, this kind of thing. So, I mean, the question isn't whether this sort of stuff is valid. It's it's sort of what the response to it was. I mean, like, at one point, Kanye West said something like, well, if you criticize certain groups in the USA, and I mean, he prominently included Jews in that, there's going to be an enormous backlash and you're going to get canceled. And I don't, I don't really think what happened proved him wrong. The question is, is that is there any validity to that? You raise a really interesting point that I want to dig into with you here about sort of the um, cultural aspect of this within black communities, how uh, some of this stuff gets discussed. I think for a lot of people, uh, they're unaware of some of the history around, you know, the black Hebrew, Hebrew Israelites group that you might see sort of in Harlem or in Canada, you might see them near the the Eaton Center in uh, Dundas Square in Toronto, um, who, you know, say that black people are the quote unquote real Jews. Um, certainly Louis Farrakhan promoted this idea a lot through the Nation of Islam um, as leader over the last few decades. And both Kanye West and Kyrie Irving sort of alluded to that same way of thinking when asked about whether they're anti-Semitic. Kanye said he could not be an anti-Semite because blacks are Jews. Kyrie Irving said he could not be anti-Semitic if he knows who he really is. So what do you make of that? I mean, is that a big part of why someone as, you know, with so much to lose, like Kanye West, with so much to lose, like Kyrie Irving, would be so reckless is that they maybe are coming from a different cultural standpoint where saying things like that aren't necessarily as controversial as as many people might assume. Well, I, I think as a guy who you know plays basketball, you know, sometimes goes to the barbershop if I want to do something other than have a baldy so on. I mean, I, I, I think that there's... <laughs> There's a lot of subtext in the black community, just like I assume there is in southern quote-unquote redneck communities, that's kind of working class, that's that's under the waterline, that people sort of tolerate and don't pay a lot of attention to. Um, these kind of conspiracy theories aren't all that wild. I mean, it, arguing with kind of a right-wing white guy online, people will often drop phrases like, we was Kangs. And that refers to the tendency of a lot of black men to say that virtually everything historically involved black people. I mean, we just gave some, some examples, ancient Egypt, ancient Israel, so on down the line. But I mean, Minister Farrakhan himself is a prime example of these sort of conspiracy theories. I mean... You know, as I understand the Nation of Islam's kind of creation myth, they believe that all other races were bred out of black people by a lunatic, big-headed scientist called Jacob about 60,000 years ago. I mean, he went to an island called Patmos and bred the weakest, most deformed, most crippled black people together. All people this time were black, by the way, according to him. Um, for, what, 200 years, and then he finally wound up with the brown race, which would be East Indians or Hispanics. And then he bred the most weak, crippled, bizarre, perverse brown people together for 200 years, and he got the red man, the Indian. And, the, you know, the most perverse, weak, money-grubbing red people together for 200 years until you got the East Asians. And then, finally, after 200 years of breeding the weakest of all these racial groups the focus on Asians, you got the devil, the ultimate monster, you know, the thing from the snows, the white man. 
And, I mean, the Nation of Islam has something like 60,000 dues-paying members. I mean, they have an accredited university, Muhammad University, you know, a full-time fighting force, the fruit of Islam. So when people talk about racism in the USA, there tends to be a focus on, like, five or six mildly socially maladjusted lawyers that are watching the V-Dare website. There's a, there's a lot of this stuff. And to some extent, it may be the natural residue of being oppressed in the past or something. But it's not infrequent that a celebrity will kind of dip into this because it's just what they hear in the barbershop. It's not really seen as evil. A lot of times the person doing it has a white partner. But, I mean, we saw this with Nick Cannon where he invited that old loony, and no offense to the brother, I mean, he's a good guy in person, but Professor Griff from Public Enemy on to, like, a primetime show, and Professor Griff started talking about, like, the mythological significance of the number nine and how, again, black people were the first Jews and the first humans. I mean, so there's there's a lot of this. It's mostly working class. It's mostly under the surface. But, like, I know brothers that believe this. Like, this is certainly more prevalent than any equivalent kind of racism on the white side of the fence when it gets to almost this religious level. So I think Kanye and Kyrie kind of thought of themselves as sharing hidden knowledge and weren't quite aware of the backlash this would get from ordinary people that identify as Christians or that oppose anti-Semitism and so on down the line. It's interesting because, you know, there's certainly... Um a part of this that is just unearthing some of the uh, the way, modes of thinking, some of the cultural uh, narratives that, as you said, sort of exist under the surface. And there are moments, you know, especially in hip hop, where you can see these things emerge. You mentioned sort of Nick Cannon and his podcast, for example. Uh, the mo- one of the most popular songs of the year, the DJ Khalid song "God Did." Jay Z makes reference to Louis Farrakhan in his verse. And so a lot of this stuff um, is out there. It, it's sort of interesting when people gravitate to it and focus on it because, for example, Jay-Z's not been criticized in any mainstream outlet that I'm aware of for making reference to Louis Farrakhan, despite the fact that he is certainly a, a, a lightning rod, a firebrand type of personality, and I think for good reason. Why do you think Kanye and Kyrie in particular at this moment receive this attention? What, is it random? Or is there something going on right now? Is there something about those two men in particular that would sort of get this reaction from people in ways that maybe other moments where some of these uh, cultural narratives come up aren't getting the attention? Well, I, I mean, I think to some extent we've seen the great races fighting for 10 or 12 years. Some, or not, not 10 or 12 years, that's an exaggeration, but four or five Black Lives Matter. I mean, sometimes literally in the street as in Kenosha. People are very sensitive about race. I think that played a role. Another thing, of course, is just the size of the platform. Platform. I mean, like, they're all kind of throwaway lines in uh, rap songs. I mean, I think that it's a Jay-Z and R. Kelly song, I think, where one of them says, and for my young girls, PP, which might be a reference to some of the things that were, you know, going on in the music business at that time that the brother R. got charged with. I mean, you know, but it's just, you know. Nobody yeah. <laughs> nobody knew exactly what they were talking about. And, you know, I still don't know exactly what they're talking about. It could theoretically mean something else. And that just, that just flew under the radar. If you go on national television or you go on these platforms that these people now have where Kanye West has, oh, I mean, 100 million followers between Twitter and Instagram, and you say the same kind of thing, I mean, you're not talking about a throwaway line in the chorus of a rap song anymore that no one can exactly trace the provenance of. I mean, you just, you just said that. Like, it's you. 
you know, I mean, and a death con on them Jews. Like, it, it's very hard to get away from that. So during a time of troubling racial tensions, these people are taking to very high-profile platforms, whether you're talking about national media or you're talking about the highest level of social media, and they're saying this stuff. So I, I think it just became a situation that couldn't be avoided. I mean, I've talked to Jewish executives about this situation, and I, I think a lot of them would have preferred, not that there's a coordinated group of Jews in the country, but a lot of people in a situation like that would have preferred to avoid it. Like, I don't think Adidas wanted to eat the cost of every pair of Yeezys they had left on the shelf. It's just sort of once the guy keeps talking and once he starts saying things like, you know, and by Jews, I mean the leadership of Adidas who can't fire me for anti-Semitism, it's going to be very, very hard to keep that individual, you know, on the payroll. So that that's what happened. It was just the, the power of the platforms. You know, and a lot of people don't understand. I, I struggle with this myself sometimes because across platforms, I'm over 100,000 social media followers. I mean, you're followed by not just by your friends, but by trolls, by people that dislike you, by political opponents. The moment you say something, that's going to be screenshot, that's going to be captured. So when Kanye West said, I'm going to say all this stuff about the Jews, and did, you know, post one and post two, and then fell asleep, I mean, that that was probably a wrap. I mean, that, at that point, a million people had seen those comments. So that, that I think, is, is what happened. Tense time, public platform. So I, I think there's an other, another element to this that's very interesting, which is – and I'm, I'm curious if you agree with me on this or not – that over the last few years, uh, there's been this focus on race, as you mentioned. But one of the underlying assumptions, whether that's the influence of ideologies like critical race theory or just sort of the, the trendy race politics of Black Lives Matter, there's been this underlying assumption that racism only works in very specific ways – and that you could go on TV and say black people can't be racist and a lot of folks would hear that as a mainstream opinion that only some people and you know assumed powerful groups could be racist and others are just expressing frustration at a system that's unfair to them. With the reaction to Kanye and Kyrie, it seems as though there is now recognition that black people do have the capacity to be racist like all other people and that we're somehow going back to a more old school definition of racism, that it's this individual action, this individual sin, this individual transgression, rather than being simply just systems and statistics and disparities and all the ways in which it's become more political and theoretical, I think, recently. Um, do you agree with that observation? Well, I hope so. I mean, the whole black people can't be racist thing is just a stupid word game from the field of sociology. I mean, it, like, if you're debating one of these guys, the next thing they'll say is, well, we can be prejudiced in positions of individual power. It's it's just meaningless nonsense. I mean, in the book Taboo, I actually put together what at the time were all the dictionary definitions of racism, which essentially just broke down to bias against an individual on the basis of race, usually genetic. And I pointed out that by this standard definition, which all the professions agreed on for centuries, racism is, is possible for, for anyone. And I, I noted how in some of the classic papers on race, Snyderman and Carmine's developing the first list experiment, for example, racism was defined quite simply as a dislike of blacks or whites or whatever. So the idea that racism is prejudice plus power is something... 
it was, it's not based on like new knowledge that we discovered. You know, it's something that came out of the field of qualitative sociology in the 70s and 80s. In my opinion, as a social scientist, you know, right down the hallway from those guys as an excuse. Because people at that point were starting to look at the Panthers. I mean, they were starting to look at kind of the post-Garvius. They were starting to look at SNCC and the student radicals. And they were finding that blacks, on average, were a lot more racist than whites. That's starting to fade. But, I mean, there had been centuries of ethnic conflict in the USA with blacks getting the worst of it. And a lot of black people were extreme bigots. And this is kind of embarrassing if you're on the left, if you're sort of the equivalent of a woke white girl that wants to wants to help these brothers. So... The the strategy, as I understand it, was simply to say, well, that's not real racism because those people don't have power. Those are just powerless ghetto kids. So even if they're robbers or rapists, they, they can't be actual bigots. But as that example illustrates, this never made a lot of sense. I don't want to I don't want to sink deep into wonkery, but almost all human interactions are individual. So if you say, well, the average black person at the mean has less power than the average white person. Yeah, sure, that's probably true. I mean, there's still some slight differences in income and so on. But, I mean, if you do look at income, you'd find that 42 or 46 or whatever percent of black people have more money and more power than the average white. So there's no logical reason that the guy in that situation couldn't discriminate against a poor white person. I mean, I'm a tenured professor at a major state university. Like, if I wanted to fire one of our janitors, and, you know, obviously, KSU community, I'm not threatening to do that, but I don't think it'd be especially difficult. You know, those are mostly white Kentucky guys. So the argument that, first of all, it's a bit racist to argue that black people don't have power, but the argument that there's not individual power in the black community is nonsensical, and the argument that if you're talking about the gunman or the rapist or whatever, racism takes individual conventional power. I mean, both of those are just wrong. They were they were made up as excuses for heightened levels of black racism. Um, and again, obviously, most black people aren't rapists or robbers or whatever, but the, the point is just what it is. Like, if you are an Irish mugger, you have the power of life and death over a Chinese-American, let's say, victim. So there was never much to this. I think after Black Lives Matter, a lot of people are starting to reject kind of the whole liberal sociological position overall. I mean, when you see where this leads, like when when people like Dr. Ibram Kendi are asked, well, what is anti-racism to you? And they say, well, it's an affirmative action program that gives black people a massive advantage in applications for jobs until exact equity has been reached. You know, the solution to discrimination in the past is racist discrimination today. Uh, and that's a pretty direct quote. I'm not trying to misrepresent the guy's ideas. But I, th- I think that a lot of people are going to look at that and say, no, that's not anti-racism. That's just racism. So people are getting a little sick and tired of this. And when someone steps forward and says, I don't like a small group of white people that has suffered intensely, I, I do think we're back to the point where people are going to say, OK, stop being a bigot. You-, you sound like a bigoted jackass. We're not there's no tolerance for that. Uh, a final point that I will make, though, also is that to some extent they picked the wrong group. I mean, there are groups that are, and this isn't unique to the Jews, but that are very sensitive to prejudice in society because they've suffered in the past and that have all these institutions designed to repel it. Uh, Jewish Americans, if you look at the ADL, so on, frankly, are one of these groups. Like, you're going to get criticized if you talk about Jews. 
Um, black Americans are another one. I'm not. I'm not singling out the Jews here. But if if you were if Eminem were to step forward and say, frankly, a lot of black mothers don't take good care of their kids or something like that, you know, Marshall Mathers would be fighting off cancellation. He might win or he might lose, but within a day. So if Kanye West had said, I'm going DEFCON 5 on white people, just like ordinary Anglos, nothing would have happened. That Mexicans or Mexican-Americans, nothing would have happened. So there are groups that have kind of these protective antibodies and there are groups that don't. But I also think that across the board, so you've got what you'd call a interaction term. Across the board, people are also just sick and tired of racist stuff. So it was a bad time for, for those comments for a lot of reasons. We'll be back with more full comment in just a moment. I opened up the podcast quoting uh, Martin Luther King from 1967, where he identified a, a common struggle that Jews and blacks in America needed to work together toward. Um, and certainly there's a lot of uh, history of black and Jewish communities working together to improve life for everybody in the United States. I'm thinking of, you know, the NAACP, a school desegregation, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, and action for uh, equal voting rights, tons of examples from the 20th century. And I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Riley, do you think that part of what's happening with some of these tensions today, with the comments that Kanye West and Kyrie Irving are making today and the reaction to that is partially the product of American society failing to acknowledge progress that, you know, if American society really celebrated all the gains that have been made, I think it would be very hard to see Jews and blacks as as not having a, a similar struggle and a shared interest. And yet it seems like there's been a move away from that perspective, maybe because of some of modern race politics um, wanting to separate people on the basis of skin color a bit more, I would say, than Martin Luther King certainly wanted to. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, so I think that what you're saying, very very intelligently phrased, brother and all this, but is is something that t- when you go again to the basketball court or the golf course or the barbershop, that is just intuitively obvious to most people. I would go so far as to say that modern American society is almost entirely non-oppressive. I mean, you might, there's some secondary bias that can be measured in a laboratory. I read an interesting paper recently about whether my home, because I'm in an interracial couple and I'm in the South, it wasn't just being black, but whether my appraisal level each year might change a little more slowly than the traditional Anglo white guys. You can have these very fringe conversations. But I mean, the, the simple reality is that you know, de jure segregation was outlawed even in the South in 1954. I mean, most of the North had integrated in the 1910s, 1920s. Um, The Civil Rights Act, which makes racial discrimination civilly and often criminally illegal, was passed in 1964. We've had pro-minority affirmative action since 1967. I mean, you have about a 200-point SAT boost applying to a top college if you're a black man. We both know that and have discussed it. So... I think right now there's there's no doubt that the USA is a society that's not only made progress, but that's reasonably fair. And there are ways to test this. I mean, if you take a first-year English-speaking immigrant from a good Ghanaian university and a first-year English-speaking immigrant from a good Irish university and drop them off in Brooklyn, are they going to have pretty similar life outcomes? I mean, all research to date, like every bit indicates yes. 
So, I mean, if you look at the top 10 highest income earning groups in the United States, and even I was surprised by this when I wrote my book, Taboo, but I mean, they're, they're generally non-white. I mean, number one is Indian Americans, $126,000 a year, make about uh, twice the national norm. Number two is, I believe, Taiwanese Americans, a little to the east of China there, same genetic population, if that matters to you. I mean, they're over 100,000. Filipino Americans, you almost always have some black or partially black groups like South Africans or Nigerians that crack that list. So, I mean, the, the essential reality that we've made a lot of progress and today are barely prejudiced at all beyond the individual level, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear. Why don't more people know that? Um, I think that there's a concerted effort to teach people the opposite to some extent. I mean, something I've often said is that the most dangerous time for an activist movement or the most challenging time is after it wins. So once you got to affirmative action, not just non-discrimination, but pro-minority discrimination, what is there for, say, the NAACP, which I've been a member of before, they do some good work locally, but what is there for them to do? And I mean, a lot of people, I believe William Julius Wilson said this, have speculated that one thing they could have done is sort of keep a skeleton crew in place, be ready, be damned ready to fight any attempts to roll back progress, go to the Supreme Court, have some lawyers on staff. But other than that, there's not that much for you to do because you won. Even by the 70s, the majority of people aren't bigots, interracial marriage is common, you you have an advantage in the law. So why keep this fight up? But what we've seen is that this infrastructure that was put in place, I mean, I mentioned one of the groups, there's the SPLC, which has a well-invested endowment of a little over $400 million. There's whatever Al Sharpton is, the National Action Network. I mean, you have all the young lions, the hundreds of BLM chapters coming up. There's a vested interest for these guys, academic and financial, in arguing that not much has changed. So you get this weird situation where you have all these fields, the left side of sociology, black studies, peace studies, ethnic studies, queer studies, combined about 10% of the campus talking constantly about how the USA is a racist hellhole. And as you can probably tell, this is a bugaboo of mine. It's something I find really irritating. Could rant about it. But I mean, it, it really does have consequences. And what you've seen is something you referenced earlier, which is the redefinition of racism. So racism, again, per you know pages 81 to 83 of Taboo, like all the definitions, is just genetically based dislike of another person. It's one of the simplest, oldest forms of human bias. Before racism, it was tribal bias. We called it outgroup bias. But I mean, people now are trying to define it in sort of a myriad of ways. So when I mentioned Dr. Kendi, his argument would be that any system that produces disparate outcomes across racial groups is racist. And this allows the activists to claim forever that the country is racist, because that's every system. I mean, there are systems that advantage minorities, like the NBA draft. There are systems that advantage whites, the SAT. Asians are now in the mix. So if your definition of racism is not everyone performing absolutely equally, and you sort of ignore all cultural, regional, historical, kind of systematic, like welfare policy, stochastic, just meaning lucky, like what's the median age of these groups? If you ignore all those variables and just say the only options are racism or genetic inferiority, you're going to be able to quote unquote call out racism forever. But the problem is that what you're calling out 90% of the time isn't racism. It's just kind of the flow of normal life. 
So that's where we are right now, where with microaggression and so on down the line, almost anything can be labeled racist, but virtually none of it would be racist in the historical sense. I mean, racism to me, and I suspect you, and to anyone you talk to outside of media and academia means disliking people because of race. And yes, that's at an all-time low, and there's a weird barrier to acknowledging that progress. Which, coincidentally, is probably resulting in more racism. I mean, I know a lot of white guys that are frankly getting sick of this. Where, as absolute anti-racists with Puerto Rican girlfriends, they're constantly told they're bigots for things like asking people, hey, where are you from? So that, that's where we are right now. And I, I do think we need, to, we need to smack a lot of this down. But Kanye and Kyrie found themselves in this whole firestorm. The black guy saying this, the white guy saying this, race a constant focus. And that wasn't helped by the fact they did say some stupid things. Yeah, I want to ask you about a sort of practical consequence of what you're observing uh, in terms of the redefinition of racism and the way we sort of assume racism functions in society these days. So there has been over the last few years increases in uh, you know hate crimes towards Hasidic Jews in New York City. Um, back in 2019, Armin Risen in Tablet Magazine wrote about this and he suggested that one of the reasons why the government of New York City is not taking these uh, the spike in hate crimes as seriously as they ought to is because the majority of perpetrators are black or Hispanic and the narrative around hate crimes doesn't really include the possibility of a Jew being victimized by a black or Hispanic person. Typically the hate crime narrative is the kind of right wing white male uh, attacking a minority. So he wrote, uh, quote, the overwhelming majority of the alleged perpetrators in New York are either black or Hispanic and casting anti-Semitism as an issue pitting Jews against various other minority groups threatens to re-agitate problems that many in the Jewish and surrounding communities hope no longer exist. And the article gives mention to the Crown Heights riot in 1991, also the 1984 Jesse Jackson fiasco where he refers to New York City as Heimitown. Um What do you make of that? Do you think we've gotten to a point where it's harder to talk about what's happening in real life because of how we think about racism? I don't think it's harder to. I mean, the conservative pundit and culture, and obviously, I mean, pr pretty far to the right, so you've got to take that into account when you read the book, but wrote an entire book called Mugged, where she talked about all these amazing racial stories. I mean, on one occasion, a group of NYPD detectives, decorated men, was almost beaten to death inside a black Muslim mosque, and the story was essentially hushed up outside of the New York press and it vanished. So all of these amazing racial stories, narratives, hate hoaxes, that you would expect to be regionally, if not internationally famous, that essentially never became story, stories nationally because they don't fit the prevalent racial narrative in the USA, which, yeah, very much is white guy and black guy clashing with white guy getting the better of it. So this is, this is something that's been going on for a long time. I mean, in Taboo, I look at interracial crime. Because at the time I wrote that book, there was a constant national focus on interracial acts of violence. I mean, if you remember the terrible Dylan Roof shooting, so on. But beyond that, I mean, like Barbecue Becky and Pool Patrol Paula and Coupon Carl and all that BS. And I was curious. I mean, I'm not primarily a criminologist. So I, I was interested in what the actual breakdowns of crime along racial lines are. 
And what I found out first is that the entire focus on this is just the media getting clicks. The huge majority of crime is intra-racial. Blacks make up uh, 13% of the American population, made up either 12 or 14%, I don't want to misstate, of the people that violently attacked whites. There was, there was no epidemic of interracial crime in the first place. person most likely to kill you is, uh, I believe, your current husband or your ex-wife. And it's one of those funny, dark statistics. But if you want to talk about interracial crime, like in the year that I looked at, among the interracial crimes, more than 80% were black on white. So for a very long time, we've actually seen the trend being angry young members of this minority group that suffered in the past beating or brutalizing whites. It absolutely does not go in the other way. When it does, it's often some white nutcase that's read the crime stats and that snaps and thinks he's Roland Martel and goes and shoots up a mosque or a black church or something like that. So... This isn't an issue in the first place. It's not a national problem in the first place, but it does cut heavily minority against white. And there's there's no reason to deny that. There's no way to deny that. But what we see is the media presenting the story very, very differently. Uh, and because I'm a long talker to kind of get to the point, do I think that happened with the violence against Jews? Absolutely. Um, and we've seen that more recently with Stop Asian Hate, right? So we were supposed to have an entire year kind of dedicated to absolutely preventing these criminal attacks against Asian Americans. I mean, and there's no doubt these were spiking. I don't like to take internet videos too seriously, but like every couple of days there was something just crazy. And there aren't that many Asians. You know, so it was like an old lady, an Asian elder being tossed in front of a train, beaten, raped. People were getting run up on, hit in the head with bricks. I saw that video. And so people started getting together. You started seeing these multicolored marches around stopping Asian hate. But then when things got to the policy level, when it got to the level of tight, maybe an addition to the hate crime laws, maybe tightening things up legally, nothing happened. And the reason for that, I wrote a piece about this for commentary, seems to be, I'm not the governor of California, but that, again, the majority of these attackers were, were people of color. They were absolutely outside narrative. If you look at the Barrow of Justice Statistics report for 2019, like the hardest data out there, I remember this almost line by line, but only 24.5% of the attackers of Asians were white, 27.5% were black. And those numbers might seem proportionate until you realize that even in big cities, there are twice as many whites as blacks. You know, another 21% were Hispanic and Native and amazingly, only about 25% were Asian. Like, the group least likely to attack Asians, with maybe one exception, was Asians. So, it was hard to spin this as something. And they try hard. I mean, if you watch Law & Order or any of these police detective shows, it's just amazing to see how many white defendants they can make up in the Bronx. I mean, it's like every attacker is sort of... He's a member of a Proud Boys-like group that drove down here specifically for the purpose of, you know. The reality is that anyone attacking a young Lebanese female storekeeper in the Bronx is going to be black or Puerto Rican. That's an ugly reality. And yeah, people shy away from it. So with these attacks on Jews, I mean, there were crazy things. Like a guy with a machete broke into an in-home shul where a, a group of Jews were holding a worship service and I think killed several people. At any rate, it was, it was a medieval stuff. He, like, laid about him with a sword. Uh, again, it was a one-day local story. So I think all this ties together. I mean, there's an extreme reluctance to discuss actual patterns of crime in the USA and in Canada. 
because the perception is, and there's nothing too crazy here. I mean, the black crime rate in the USA is about twice the white crime rate, violent crime, 2.3 times. But there, there's a feeling that just discussing this will bring up like old school, historic white racism. So it's not done. Um, and this also ties into the entire enterprise, you know, SPLC, ADL, you know, National Action Network, so on down the line, whatever Jesse Jackson is, Rainbow Coalition. This also ties into the network of people that are focused on prosecuting or following up on, at least, this older form of racism. So a lot of actual bias, as it actually exists, falls into the gaps. There's not an organization designed to protect, say, white women who get mugged by people of color. And that's that's the gap the Jews fell into and then later the Asians fell into, in my opinion. It seems to me that the ideal place that we sort of collectively as human beings would get to is one where all people are held accountable for their beliefs and their actions, uh, regardless of what they look like or where they come from, but also that people who are willing to make amends and take responsibility for their mistakes are given a pathway to repentance and sort of redemption. Um, that's what I think an ideal society looks like. I think we're going to see something like that with Kyrie Irving's situation where he has apologized. I think he will, his suspension will end at some point. He'll be back to playing basketball in Brooklyn. I don't know if Kanye West is going to be given the chance for redemption or if frankly, he's going to seek it out. But in both situations, I do think we've seen an example of accountability to some degree. Do you think that there is some sort of positive outcome that can come from the blowback against West and Irving? Or where do you see this going well, next? I, I think exactly what you said, which I think is what pretty much every sane person, certainly any sane person raised in the Christian or Muslim tradition would think. Like if you sin, you know, if you screw up, if you do something like make a racist slur against countrymen – yeah, it's expected that you apologize and you're going to you're going to do penance, you're going to be out of the public square for a couple months. But yeah, then you then you get a chance to come back. I mean, you're not talking about actual neo-Nazis here or something like that. And you know, given grace, given that they they change their views, I'd extend the same same freedom to them. Um so this this gets into wokeness was once described not by me. I think it might be might have been by John McWhorter, but as a religion that has no idea of mercy or redemption. So you have these same concepts of some things just can't be done. Even like you can't say certain words like the N word, you know, the C word for women or their anatomy and the major insults for Asian Americans, so on down the line. So they're, they're the same sort of taboos, these same sort of strictures. But if you violate them very often, there's no way to change that fact. And you frequently see these stories about, like, hip-hop white girls and in interracial relationships singing along with rap songs on a team bus and being, like, cut from the team and kicked out of school. You know, so do I favor redemption in those situations? Yes. And I think for a variety of reasons, including the fact that they're black and they're rich, um, Irving certainly in West maybe will be kind of extended that olive branch at some point. You know, and yeah, I, I absolutely support that. One thing that I will say here, it's hard for me to be kind of the way I write this on Twitter is sh 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 shocked by by things that go on in kind of this this space of public discussion. I mean, I don't think of myself at all as a tough guy, but I grew up in you know a hood neighborhood. I've had people shoot you know at me or very near me with guns. 
you know, um, I have multiple friends that have been wounded or killed in the wars fought by the USA. And again, I wasn't gangbanging or anything. People just had weapons around. But I mean, you know, and other tragedies have gone on in life. You know, my mother died not long ago. I mean, now, now years passed, of course. You know, I've been in vehicular wrecks where I could have been killed. I'm not trying to present myself as having had a fascinatingly adventurous life. I've traveled in the third world is another another element of this. But, I mean, so when people say offensive things on social media, my reaction is, oh, that thing that guy said on Twitter was mildly offensive. Um, I tend to think that this sort of feigned horrified reaction that people do is just BS. I I don't really think anyone means it. So with Kanye West, for example, one of the things that I noted was that he didn't, like the DEFCON reference, he was trying to say DEFCON, meaning like my debating opponents better get ready because tomorrow I'm coming out shooting. He wasn't actually threatening the lives of Jewish people. But I mean, people immediately took what he said, ran with it, and there was very little prospect of kind of a redemptive process. So yeah, I think both both those brothers should be given a chance to, you know, do a quick apology, rehab, move on with their lives. And that's the case for almost all of this stuff. I mean, excuse the word, but if some college girl says, my nigga to her best friend, you suspend her for a week and then you go on with life. There's there's not necessarily some traumatic lesson to be learned from these stories. Kyrie Irving posted a mildly racist documentary that you can buy in barbershops around the hood everywhere in the country, probably in Canada too, and that's it. He should apologize when they bench him for five games and then that's it. I don't, I don't think most of these stories are stories. And last point, I also think there's an element of sociopathic status-seeking to this. Like, when you look at a lot of the professions where this is very common, where you get the pack-feeding mobs like journalism, there are fields where it's very, very difficult to make your way up the ladder and where there's normally a lot of entrenched dead weight on that ladder in front of you. And a lot of these allegations that somebody did X and needs to be canceled strike me as just ways to remove those obstacles. So, I mean, like, I don't know if you remember this thing with, I think it was the Washington Post, uh, Felicia Sonmez. One of her colleagues made a joke that was like, in my experience, all women are either bisexual or bipolar. Just a dumb, actually kind of funny joke. It was Dave Weigel, their politics guy. So Felicia Sonmez retweets the joke and says, this is the kind of workplace that I'm forced to exist in. Can you even imagine it as a woman? These are all independent tweets. And this goes on for days. She starts calling out everyone who liked the joke. Like, can you believe that so-and-so clicked like on this? Um, someone said, maybe you two should just go to lunch and make up. Can you believe I'm being asked to go on a date with my abuser? This, this went on for weeks until finally the post, I believe, fired both of them. And now, so Sanmez miscalculated there. She went a little too far at the end. But the, the point of that is not that some post-college woman is offended by the idea that she might be bisexual. It's that... You're, you're clearing the way. You're, you're setting a new standard for what's forbidden that will advantage your group over your rivals. So I, I have very little sympathy for this stuff. I don't think anyone that's ever been shot at in the military, you know, neck tackled playing varsity sports, 
anyone who's ever had a blue-collar job, black topping, a parking lot, the majority of people, certainly the majority of men, I don't think are actually horrified by this stuff. I think we're caught up in the middle of a social game right now where people seek advantage by doing this crap. And to the extent that people have the power position where they can at least ask to be allowed to apologize, yeah, let them. I, I could care less what Kyrie Irving thinks about the historical origins of black people. I'm interested in why he can't seem to get along with his teammates. You know, it, it doesn't really matter in a lot of cases. So sure, let him apologize, give him some sensitivity training, move on. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Dr. Riley. Again, he is the author of Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, available in bookstores everywhere. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm guest host, Jamil Giovanni. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music, where you can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help by giving us a rating or leaving a review. And of course, by telling your friends about us.